It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. One of the questions which we are asked kind of less and less these days is, what kind of fishes are suitable for a botanical-style aquarium? I, I think that after about six years of pounding all of these crazy ideas into your heads about all of the strange nuances about botanical-style aquariums, it's almost universally understood that pretty much any fishes can live in aquariums with leaves and twigs and so forth. Uh, to an extent anyway. On the other hand, when it comes to how we stock our tanks, nothing's really changed. However, it could, and it should in my opinion. We spend a pretty good amount of time, you know, studying, scheming, and just pondering how to create compatible, interesting, and really attractive communities of fishes within our aquariums. And that's pretty cool. It's probably among the most enjoyable things that we do in the hobby, right? As a somewhat eccentric philosopher of all things fish, one of my favorite things to ponder is stuff that we do while creating our aquariums, which is intentionally or otherwise analogous to the factors in nature that result in the environments and fish populations that we love so much. But that was a mouthful, wasn't it? But basically what I'm saying is we do things in our aquarium practice that are very analogous to the stuff that happens in nature. And if you're like me, you probably spend a little too much time pondering all these sort of arcane things within the hobby. Okay, so maybe you're not like me, but you probably have a rather keen interest in the way nature operates in the wild aquatic systems of the world, and you stock your aquariums accordingly. As one who studies lots of details about some of the habitats from which our fishes come, I can't help but occasionally wonder exactly what it is that brings fishes to a given location or niche within an environment. And... The first answer you're likely to hear is the most apparent, right? I mean, they follow the food. Fishes tend to move into new areas in search of suitable food sources as part of their life cycle. And food sources often become available in habitats like, I don't know, flooded forests and so forth after the areas, in those areas like after the rain comes, when decomposing leaves and botanical materials begins to recreate or reactivate, as the case may be, food webs attracting ever more complex life forms into the area. When we create our aquariums, we take into consideration a lot of factors, ranging from the temperament and size of our fish selections to their appearance and all that stuff, right? These are all important factors. However, have you ever considered what the factors are in nature which affect the composition of a fish community in a given habitat? Like, why is, you know, X fish living in a particular habitat? 
What adaptations has that fish made to make it uniquely suitable for this environmental niche? Further, have you thought about how we as hobbyists replicate to some extent the actual selection processes which occur in nature to create that perfect community aquarium that we all want? Now, if you're an African cichlid lover or a reef hobbyist, I'm sure you have. Social hierarchies, you know, spatial orientations, um, allelopathic processes, these are all vital, understanding these things are all vital to success in these types of aquariums. And you typically can't get away with just throwing a random fish or a coral in there and hoping it'll just mix all perfectly. However, for many hobbyists who aim to construct uh, simple community tanks, it isn't that vital to spill, fill you know, specific niches and stuff like that. We probably move other factors to the forefront when thinking about possible additions to our community of fishes, like how cool the fish looks, how large it grows, if it has a peaceful temperament, etc. More basic kind of stuff. However, in the end, we almost always make selections based upon factors which we deem important. Again, as sort of near mimicry of natural processes when you think about it and how the fishes work in the habitat that we've created for them. Unnatural selection? Or is it essentially what nature does and has done for eons? Or eons, but it is. <laughs> Boy, sometimes I trip over my own words, don't I? But, but think about that. Isn't that the same process that nature uses, uh, you know, to, to determine what fishes live where? I think it's so. I think so. Oh, and what exactly is an aquatic habitat in any way? In short, you could say that an aquatic habitat is the physical, chemical, and biological characteristics which determine the suitability for habitation and reproduction of aquatic organisms, in our case, fishes. Of course, these characteristics can determine which fishes are found in a given area in the wild pretty much without exception. It's been happening for eons. Uh, approaching the stocking of an aquarium by determining which fishes would be appropriate for the physical characteristics of our tank is not exactly groundbreaking stuff, right? However, when we evaluate this in the context of theme and what fishes would be found within, say, an Amazonian Igarape stream or a Southeast Asian peat swamp, the idea of adding fishes to exploit the features of the natural habitat that we've recreated is remarkably similar to the processes which occur in nature that determine what fishes are found there. It's the ultimate expression of good tank planning, in my opinion. It's just kind of interesting to think about it in that kind of unusual context, right? Competition is another one of those important factors in determining how fish populations occur in the wild. Uh, specifically, competition for stuff like space, resources, um, you know, uh, and mates are, you know, the most prevalent forms of this type of, uh, type of thing. Uh, in our aquariums, we do see this to some extent, right? The alpha male cichlid, the pleco get, that gets the best, you know, cave, and the tetra which dominates his little shoal. How we create the physical space for our fishes can have significant impact on this behavior. When good hiding spaces are a premium, as are available spawning partners, there will be some form of social hierarchy, right? Other environmental factors like water movement, dissolved oxygen, etc. are perhaps less impactful on our community once the tank is established. However, these factors figure prominently in our decisions about the composition of or the numbers of the fishes in the community, don't they? For example, you're unlikely to keep, you know, hillstream loaches in a near stagnant blackwater swamp, you know, biotope aquarium, just like you'd be unlikely to keep altum angels in a fast-moving stream biotope, you know, representation. And fishes with shoal or school will obviously be best kept in numbers. I mean, this is aquarium keeping 101 again. We all know this stuff. But 
it's interesting when you think about it. And one factor that we typically don't have in our aquaria is predation. I mean, we don't want to. I know very few aquarists who would be, I don't know, sadistic enough to even contemplate trying to keep predators and prey in the same tank just to let them have at it and see what happens and, you know, see who comes out on top. I mean, there is a lot to this stuff, isn't there? Again, the idea of creating a tank to serve the needs of certain fishes is not earth-shattering. I get this. Yet the idea of stocking a tank based on the available niches and the physical characteristics is kind of a cool, educational, and ultimately very gratifying process. I just think it's truly amazing that we're able to actually do this these days. And the sequence that you stock your tank is, and is also pretty important. I think that you could literally create a sort of sequence to stocking various types of fishes based on the stage of evolution that your aquarium's in. Although the sequence might be a bit different from nature, of course, in some cases. For example, in a more or less brand new aquarium, analogous in this case to a newly inundated forest floor, for example, there might be a lot less in the way of lower life forms like fungi and bacteria until the materials begin breaking down. You'd simply have an aggregation of fresh leaves, twigs, seed pods, soil, etc. in the habitat. So if anything, you're likely to see fishes which are much more dependent upon allochthonous input, you know, food from the terrestrial environment, eating, you know, fruits and things like that. It's a compelling way to stock an aquarium, I think, especially aquarium systems like ours, which make the use of these materials on NOS. Right from the start, it would not be unrealistic to add, you know, after cycling, of course, to add fishes which feed on terrestrial fruits and botanical materials like, you know, colossuma, arowana, mitinus, etc. Fishes which, for most aquarists, of course, are utterly ridiculous and impractical to keep because they just become massive fish and they need huge aquariums. However... A lot of smaller, more aquarium-suitable fishes will like pick at fruits and seeds too, so you're not totally stuck with the big guys if you want to go this route. Interestingly, the consumption and elimination of fruits by a lot of these fishes is considered as a major factor in the distribution of many plants in the Amazonian region. I find that really fascinating. Do a little search here and you might be able to, you know, a little bit surprised uh, about who consumes what in these kind of habitats. Now, more realistically for most aquarists, I think that you could easily stock first with fishes like surface-dwelling or near-surface-dwelling species like the hatchet fishes and pencil fishes, which are largely dependent upon terrestrial insects such as flies and ants in nature. In other words, they tend to forage or graze very little and are more opportunistic, taking advantage of careless and clumsy you know, insects which end up on the surface of the water in these newly inundated environs. I studied, uh, I've read studies where I think it was almost 100 species or so were documented which feed near exclusively on insects and arthropods from terrestrial sources in some of these flooded forest habitats. As I mention often, if you get deep dive a little bit deeper than the typical hobbyist writing and go into the scholarly stuff, you'd be fascinated to read about you know gut content analysis of fishes because they, these gut content analyses give you a tremendous insight about what to feed in your aquarium. Now, continuing on, it's easy to see that as the environments evolve, so does the fish population. And the possibilities for simulating this in the aquarium are many and are quite interesting. Later, as the materials start to decompose and are acted on by the fungi and bacteria, you can conceivably add more of the grazing-type fishes, you know, plecos, small quarries, headstanders, fish like that. As the tank ages and breaks in even more, this would be analogous to the period of time when microcrustaceans and aquatic insects are present in greater numbers, and you'd be inclined to see more of these micro-predators like terracins and ultimately small cichlids moving into the area. Interestingly, scientists have postulated that the evolution 
uh, in these environments, evolution has favored small fishes like kerosens because they're really, really efficient at capturing small terrestrial insects and spiders than the larger guys are. And it makes a lot of sense. If you look at it strictly from a density variety standpoint, lots of kerosens call these habitats home. And then, of course, there's the detritivores. Uh, the tritivorous fishes remove large quantities of this stuff from submerged trees and branches, etc. Now, you may be surprised to learn that in the wild, that the gut content analysis of almost every fish indicates that they consume organic detritus to some extent. I mean, like everything. And it makes sense. They work with the food sources that are available to them. At different times of the year, different food sources are easier to obtain. And of course, all the fishes which live in these habitats contribute to the surrounding forest by recycling nutrients that's locked up in the detritus. This is thought by ecologists to be especially important in blackwater inundated forests and meadows and areas like the Pantanal because of long, long periods of inundation and the nutrient-poor soils that uh, result from the slow decomposition rates of material. All of this is actually really easy to replicate to a certain extent when stocking our aquariums. Now, why would you stock in this sort of sequence when you're likely not relying on decomposing botanicals and leaves and fungal and microbial life associated with them as your primary food source? Good question. Well, you likely wouldn't be. However, what about the way that fishes, when introduced at the appropriate phase in the tank's life cycle, what about the way they adapt to the tank? Wouldn't the fishes take advantage of these materials as a supplement to the prepared foods that you're feeding them? Doesn't this impact the fish's, you know, genetic programming in some fashion? Like they're, hey, I'm home. I need to eat this stuff. Can it activate some hidden, you know, health benefits or behaviors or whatever? I believe that it can. I know I'm reaching and I have a lot of faith in this stuff, but I really think so. And I believe that this type of more natural feeding can profoundly and positively impact our fish's long-term health. I'm no genius, trust me. I don't have half the skills many of you guys do, but I've succeeded with a lot of really hard-to-feed fishes over my hobby career. Why? Because I'm really fucking patient. Success with this approach is simply a result of deploying what I call radical patience. The practice of just moving really slowly and carefully when adding fishes to new tanks. It's a pretty simple concept. The hard part is waiting longer to add fishes. See if you could wait a minimum of three weeks or even up to a month or two if you can just stand it and stock your aquarium with crustaceans, copepods, daphnia, paramecium, stuff like that. You'll have a surprisingly large population of micro and macro fauna, which your fishes can forage between feedings when, right when you add them into the aquarium. Having a sort of pre-stock system uh, does help reduce a considerable amount of stress for these new inhabitants, particularly wild fishes or fishes that have reputations as delicate feeders, like fishes like, for example, some of the chocolate guarmies or pipe fishes, which are notoriously tricky to get to captive or prepared foods. And you can give them a good start. I've done this with marine fishes before too, and it does work. And think about it. This is really a natural analog of sorts. Just another one. Fishes that live in inundated forest floors. Yes, I'm going back to the agapo again return to these areas to follow the food once they flood, right? So it just takes a few weeks, really. You'll see that fungal growth. Then you'll see the breakdown of the leaves and other botanical materials brought on by botanical action, by bacterial action or the feeding habits of the small shredding insects and fungi. So if you pre-stock, you might even see the emergence of a significant population of copepods, amphipods, or other little creatures crawling about, free from predators, foraging on algae and detritus, and happily reproducing in your tank. We kind of know this already, though, right? 
it's really analogous to the tried and true practice of cultivating some turf algae on rocks in either in or from outside the tank before adding, you know, herbivorous or grazing fishes to give them some grazing materials. We've, done, we've seen people do that with African cichlid tanks and, and people that keep catfishes. It's radical patience. It, it yields impressive results. Now, it's not always easy to try something a little out of the ordinary or a bit against the grain of popular practice, but I commend you for even thinking about the idea. And this isn't the last word on this subject. I'm just trying to get the idea into your head. You've probably thought of it before, but never really thought of it in context of how it corresponds to nature. At the very least, this may just give you pause to how you stock your tank with fishes in the future. Like, I don't know, herbivores first, micropredators last, or whatever thought you subscribe to. It's fun. It's experimental. Allow your system to mature and develop at least some populations of fauna for these fishes to supplement their diets with. You'll develop a whole new appreciation for how an aquarium evolves when you take this long but really cool road. Stay patient. Stay observant. Stay creative. Stay studious. Stay resourceful. And always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tannin.